Startup Heroes podcast. Welcome back to the Startup Heroes podcast, the podcast where we celebrate founders and investors that have done things differently. Hosted by me, Amory Polden. And me, Joshua Minsk. And today, we're joined by one of the most well-known VCs out there, Bryce Roberts. Bryce is a co-founder at OATV. Their portfolio includes companies like Bitly, Figma, Foursquare, and the list goes on. At OATV, Bryce also developed IndieVC, which is perhaps one of the most high-profile examples of a fund doing venture differently. We're so excited to have him on today, so let's jump into it. Bryce, huge, huge thank you for coming on. I'm really excited about this episode. Really, really cool to talk to you um, after all this time exchanging emails. So I guess we'll kick things off with a like right from the very beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood, what you were like growing up, um, sort of lay the, lay the scene for us? The scene, um, child of the 80s, uh, you know, grew up as kind of this um, skateboarder kid. Skateboarding was a big part of my, you know, my um, youth and experience. I was not a great team sport player, which is probably why I gravitated towards VC. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, was always kind of considered myself um, interested in kind of emergent behavior. So, I mean, if, you, if you've grown up a skateboarder, you kind of know that you, you're probably hyper observant in terms of kind of you go into a new city and you're just on the prowl looking for spots to hit or people and everything from like the way a curb is marked up to like the kind of art that's hanging in a coffee shop like it just it sends so much signal and I was just always fascinated with that signal and kind of where the world was moving and and, and so um, you know found that to be the case um, in in my studies, I was interested, studied philosophy um, as an undergrad uh, with the intent of going to law school and then ended up getting um, pulled into startups, but not accidentally. I, I'd always kind of viewed law as like a skill to take into, as misdirected as that is, like a skill to take into startups. And so, you know, my, my intent was always to kind of be involved and, and I was always attracted to entrepreneurship. Um, but ultimately decided to start building versus continuing on with education and uh, started uh, my first company back in 1999, which was a ski company out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, here in the States. Um, and then kind of snowballed into tech from there. That's We kind of caught the tail end of the dot-com wave and, and, and that's kind of how it started for me. I love it. I love it. Hopefully, hopefully, if I if I pivot my camera slightly, you can see <laughs> my longboard <laughs> up there. Um, and so you you had a couple of roles in tech. I, I think you you were working as a product manager. Um, you're at Whizbang Labs, um, and then you were a founder as well. And then, what was the sort of catalyst behind the decision to go and form OATV and to actually move into venture for the first time? So yeah, when I was um... I had been invited to participate in at a venture fund while I was at Wisbang Lab. So I, I, I had been a product manager there. It was an interesting kind of, it wasn't, you know, you, you, it was kind of like a studio before there were really this idea of a studio. It was, you know, a group of people who developed some underlying technology. And the whole idea was like, let's spin up vertical applications of that technology 
the first one of those applications was in job search software. And so we ended up selling that business to monster.com back in the day, but it was a high enough flying company. And I happened to know some people in Utah, which is where I was at the time um, that were in venture. And they invited me to come spend some time with their firm. Originally it was like spend a month, that month turned into four years and kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of venture at a really interesting time where, you know, we were coming off the, the dot-com bust. I joined in 2001 and was immediately introduced to a word that I had never heard before called triaging, which, you know, <laughs> in, in wartime triage is like, you know, it's just like fog of war. And, and you know, you can imagine the visual of, of um, you know, a hospital where just bodies are coming in and people are trying to, no one really knows what's going on. And, and that's probably a little bit more graphic than, you know, what was happening in startups, but it certainly captured the moment, which was like, you know, clearly the startup world had changed. Uh, the oxygen that had been supplied, you know, had been cut off. And so, you, you know, you, you had these companies that were suddenly trying to make themselves into real businesses uh, overnight. And so that's, that's what I was kind of thrown into. My first project as an investor was kind of do a deep dive on the portfolio just to figure out like who was worth saving and who wasn't and how much energy we should be spending um, supporting existing companies versus cutting our losses and, and, and kind of planting new seeds. Um, and that was a, you know, it was a super um, instructive exercise to go through early on as kind of a, not just this kind of wide-eyed investor, but as like a portfolio manager to really understand how to think about portfolio construction, value driving. Um, you know, we, we talk about these kind of, um, yeah, you know, kind of um, outsized outcomes. So how do you allocate your dollars accordingly? So that was, that was a really interesting experience for me. I then got involved in the fundraising side. So I got to see both the portfolio construction, but then a piece that I think early on in my career ended up being, you know, incredibly helpful, which was seeing the LP side of the house. So it was a very small firm that I that I had joined and they gave me kind of free reign to participate in their fundraising process, which at the time I was, you know, mid mid twenties, uh, had no experience, but you know, given that amount of freedom, really took to it. And I wanted to understand kind of what that side of the house looked like is it, you know, was clearly uh, drove so much uh, possibility for a firm to be able to scale. And then, you know, OATV kind of came about as I was, as I was with that firm, you know, we were, uh, we were ostensibly kind of a geographic focused fund. So I got interested in different themes that we were seeing in the region. And one of the themes that we were seeing was this movement towards open source. So at that time, you know, you'd had JBoss had just taken funding from Peter Fenton. You had MySQL that had just gotten funding from Benchmark. You were starting to see this movement of this kind of nights and weekends project type of software that was now starting to move into like full-on commercial applications that were starting to kind of chew into, you know, uh, market share of, of meaningful market participants. And so um, we thought there was an interesting story to be told around the business of open source. And so started a conference to kind of get to know the players there from the investors to, you know, people like Clayton Christensen and one of the people who 
spoke at our first conference was Tim O'Reilly, the O of OATV. And so, you know, I think Tim, Tim was impressed with kind of coming out of what had been, you know, a really tough time for conferences. He walked into our show, which was, you know, kind of standing room only. The timing was perfect. It was two, you know, some people that he'd never met before. Um, but we really kind of captured a moment in this transition. And so even though uh, we ended up selling the conference to somebody else, it started this kind of broader conversation with Tim around other structural changes that were happening in technology and the impacts those were going to have on his business, the publishing business. You know, he at the time was just spinning up a conference called Web 2.0. Um, and then for us, you know, the you know what were what were the impact of what would those impact be on startups and how you fund startups and the kinds of startups you could fund and the kinds of outcomes that you could generate from startups that kind of historically had relied on a kind of robust um, IPO window during the dot-com days, you know, you are now starting to see this kind of resurgence of, of exploration and, and experimentation that was hard to do when it cost you $5 million in, you know, Oracle databases and, you know, Sun servers and, all that now you were able to get this kind of um, exploration happening around different applications that uh, wasn't really possible pre Web 2.0, and so we looked at that and said, "Oh, this this looks and feels like a fundamentally different kind of startup that potentially could benefit from a fundamentally different kind of funding to support support them." So that's that's kind of that was the that was the seeds of of OATV and, and I laugh now, I mean, we talked a little bit about Web3 before we started, but you know, the original, part of the original idea behind OATV was we were gonna call it a, a Web2.0 fund, <laughs> which it seems comical in hindsight and you know, I would imagine you know, Web3 funds will seem just as comical in hindsight in the next 10 years, but um, we were definitely early on that trend. I mean, and at OETV, you were one of you guys were one of the pioneers of the whole sort of seed um, investing stage. I mean, that correct me if I'm wrong, but that didn't really exist as a kind of concept. Maybe it was being done in an ad hoc manner, but you guys really were one of the leading lights behind professionalizing that. Did you have, as you were sort of embarking on that challenge around pickup among founders, you know, challenge with other investors? Um, because you're essentially you're rewriting the rules of, of of how venture capital was done at that stage. Yeah, no, I, yeah, it, it was definitely a new idea, and I think seed wasn't the obvious title for it when we got started. Again, it was like, what what is this new kind of investing? Because it felt so different, right? It was, you know, you had Mike Maples out there saying five hundred thousand is the new five million, right? That all of a sudden you could with, with you know, an order of magnitude less resources create just as much value. And so what would that change in terms of kind of who gets funded, what gets funded, what kinds of outcomes can really move the needle for an investor who's writing those kinds of checks. Um, but the, but the, the nomenclature was like super angels was a name that was kind of getting batted around. Micro VCs was another thing that was getting batted around. Um, but I remember a kind of an email thread and I haven't been able to, to, to find it since that we had going between probably five or six different firms where we were ideating on kind of what, what, you know, like if we were going to, if this was going to be a category and for us at the time, you know, to get 
institutional investor interest, you had to be a bucket, you had to be a category of something. And so ultimately we decided to kind of uh, jettison some of those other names and really start using seed as kind of the, 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 um, the tagline that we were going to be using to kind of build that category around. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the response to it was kind of almost immediate, which was fascinating, right? You had um, VCs were not threatened by it because they weren't writing these checks at all. So originally, I would say 80 to 90% of the deal flow that we saw as seed stage funds were direct referrals from those investors who were saying, hey, this is too early for us. It's too small for us. There used to be this kind of debate about, is it a, you know, is it a feature, a product or a company, right? Like, there were so many um, things that kind of looked small. They looked like features, but they also looked like they were worth kind of exploring a little bit more that a VC at the time, at least, couldn't really commit to doing because they needed to write these three, five, seven, ten million dollar checks. Um, so we were kind of a natural, um, a natural place for them to kind of refer companies to more than an angel because an angel was only going to put in. 25 to 50K, where we could write million to million and a half dollar checks. Um, and yet, you know, like, but but it became pretty clear early on, you know, that Seed, seed began to play um, this role in the ecosystem of like kind of gearing people up for their next raise. So I think in, in an idealist, like when, when we first started the, you know, part of the ideals of Seed was like, it was this new form of optionality, right? You could get done on 500K what you needed 5 million to do before. And with that, you now have only raised one round of funding. You still own a significant amount of the company. Um, your investors are now in at such an, you know, such an attractive price that even a, you know, at the time, you know, the, the, the wins were like the flickers and the blog lines, you know, these were only, 20 to 50 million dollar outcomes but you know if you had an appropriately sized fund suddenly the entrepreneur is getting a life-changing outcome for themselves and we as a fund were getting double digit percentages of our funds returned too and so you know you had this um dynamic where um you know there was this kind of, you, you definitely felt like you were feeling you were playing a separate game than the traditional vcs were playing but then the the you know the the reality was it became um, pretty standard to then just uh, rather than play optionality, it became more of a um, an arbitrage. So you know if if you know a top seed fund could you know kind of take a company, clean it up, you know get the story right, get a little bit of validation, you could see yourself you know. Um, write your check, you know, write the first check in one, one month. And within three months, you're seeing these incredible markups from firms, you know, oftentimes three, four or five X your investment in six to eight weeks um, where, you know, the IRRs were irresistible. And, you know, suddenly, you know, you had this narrative taking shape around seed that it wasn't necessarily something that was wholly independent. It was kind of an earlier, on-ramp too. And so you started to get this LP interest, not only in these kind of quick and immediate pops in terms of valuation and IRR, but then 
you know, at the time, the Sequoias and the Kleiners and the, you know, the, the really top tier firms limited pretty significantly who they allowed in as their LPs. And they were pretty disciplined in terms of their fund sizes. And so suddenly the light bulb started going off for LPs where it was like, okay, not only can we see these kind of, not, not only do we effectively like skip the J curve, but we, um, we're able to kind of get into benchmarks companies and Sequoia's companies and all these top tier firms were able to get in before they are even getting access to that. So it's kind of their way of shimmying into exposure to top funds through the seed firms that ended up being feeders to those, to those firms. So it was this, you know, it was probably like two or three years of, of really, really dynamic. And, you know, this was, we started in 2005. Um, and so there were probably like two to three years where it was like us, Mike Maples, Josh Koppelman was doing kind of annual funds back then under the uh, Midas Capital, I think is what he called it back then, moniker. Um, but then pretty quickly, you know, people started to kind of see the opportunity. You had, you know, GPs leaving big funds to go start seed funds because it felt more like, you know, what, what venture should be. Um, and so there was kind of this, this kind of three to five year window where it felt really um, formative. And then after like four to five years, then the LPs kind of figured it out. And, you know, and that's when you started to see like real dollars, not only plowing into real LP dollars, plowing into seed, but you also saw a lot of the kind of first wave of top funds standing up their own seed programs to kind of compete with, uh, with, with the, with the early seed funds. I think that's particularly interesting, uh, hearing about how, how seed sort of came to be because somebody like me, when I went out to start my first startup and raise my first seed round, all the material was there. It was many oh, yeah. years yeah, old. YC had made videos about it. It was, it was established. And, um, and it's interesting to hear about how things like that are formed. And I think, um, you know, you've, you've seen things like this happen multiple times over yeah. the years. You know, you, you saw this with seed, you saw it happen with indie. And I'm curious, um, specifically on the startup founder side, you know, startup founders, at least many startup founders are inherently hackers in their behavior and how they figure problems out. And especially when they get exposed to funding for the first time, they want to think about how they can hack funding. And they start to uh, follow this track that's been laid out in front of them. And I imagine when you first started speaking to startup founders about doing capital raises and you were telling them, no, you know, you should do, you should do this new thing called the seed round. We're going to give you a fifth of the money. It's going to be great. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how that went and how that changed over time. You know, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think we, we had an LP who was, um, uh, who 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 really kind of spotted that early on, which was like, you know, part of what goes along with Web2 is like this, you know, user-generated content transparency, like this whole idea that venture was this kind of cottage industry, very much network-driven proprietary deal flow, like that all starts to go out the window when you can write, you know, really clear and concise posts on how to raise seed rounds, how to raise Series A rounds? What you know, I, and I think to your point, you know, one of the great things that 
um, you know, I think it's under discussed even when it comes to Y Combinator is like, because they were hackers, you know, PG and that early crew, they really figured out how to hack the VC algorithm. Like they just figured out the patterns that, that VCs invested against and really, you know, coach entrepreneurs on how to, um, how, how to, how to project, you know, whatever narratives needed to be project, whatever metrics needed to be projected. Uh, and that was, that was entirely new. Like no one sat around talking about like what metrics you needed to, you know, go from a seed round to an A round or, a, or an A round to a B round. This was all kind of that whole surface area, um, was created between probably 2005 and 2010. You know, that, that was a whole new feature of investing that, you know, one, you had, you know, the, the kind of hacker ethos of being able to kind of demystify and break down into the component parts, the process. But then you also had this flip side, which was kind of brand building, uh, individual brand building and firm brand building around that that really, that really fueled it. And then, I mean, at OATV, you guys invested in some really, really iconic businesses like like Bitly and Figma and Foursquare, among others. And if you if you sort of cast your mind back to the earliest days when you first met those founders, were there were there unifying character traits among those founders um, that, uh, in hindsight, were valid signals, um, or were your assumptions at that point just directionally correct but completely wrong otherwise? Huh. Well, that's that's what we would always that's what we always tell our LPs. We'll be directionally correct. We'll always be interesting, <laughs> you know. But, but we we don't know that we'll always land in exactly the one. But I think there has to be some for us at least at OATV. There had to be some kind of um, you know some breadcrumb towards a, a a more interesting future, right? And so I think if you look at um, the early days of uh, O'Reilly and kind of how we grew OATV kind of alongside O'Reilly at that time, you know, you had web two, which was obviously like, you know, just a massively outsized theme. You also had then, then kind of the verticalizing of different, um, web two opportunities, right? So Foursquare would fall into that, um, geospatial, like what happens when you, have these devices that are, you know, constantly transmitting location. You know, I think I think that was one of the great gifts that kind of Tim Tim gave to us as a firm and me personally was, you know, just being able to kind of uh, watch. Yeah, I think we wrote about it, and I think Dixon ended up kind of capturing it really well with like what people do on the weekends, what you know, what what uh, you know, the rest of us will be doing in five years, and I feel like. That was for us at least always a good guiding light in terms of kind of where energy was going to go. So you see, even today in Web three, you know, you you start to hear like where people are spending their spare time, where people, you know, where the most interesting people are spending, you know, the free time they have. Um, you know, that's something that's always kind of driven our investing and our thinking. And so when I go back to a Bitly or I go back to a um, you know, I go back to a Foursquare or even a Figma, you know, they, they had all kind of captured some piece of what we call the alpha geek thinking, or they came from those alpha geek communities where, you know, and that's OA, the alpha, alpha, you know, tech in OATV is, you know, that idea of like these alpha geeks that are really the kind of front runners of the future. And that if you can build 
you know, a network of them and you can build an ideology, you know, around them to support their work, um, you know, you can, you can be directionally correct enough, you know, to, to really move the needle from a fund level. And, and, and we've been fortunate from that standpoint. I love it. That's a really powerful way of describing it. And then, so you fast forward, um, it's, it's, it's 2015 um, and having rewritten um, the rules once over with Seed, you, you rewrite them again um, with Indie. And um, for, for, for the listeners who aren't familiar with the Indie strategy, it'd be great if you could just, um, in a nutshell, summarize that. And then I, I guess really also dwell on what the catalyst was for Indie in 2015 in terms of your thinking. You know, there's clearly a big catalyst for Seed. Yeah. So what's the catalyst then that drove you to create Indie? So the catalyst for Indie were, were kind of, there were a few kind of data points that I was paying attention to. One was this kind of growing Indie ethos that was starting to percolate up through companies like Atlassian, GitHub. Um, there was, you know, there's even Kickstarter um, at, a, at a certain level too. There was this like irreverence that came along with them. Like if you remember the early days of GitHub, like they, like, being bootstrapped was such a big part of their ethos. It was such a big part of what drew people to them were these like non-corporate, you know, like really trailblazers who were out doing something different. They weren't beholden. They could keep their users' interests, uh, you know, at stake. You started to see this kind of, um, at least, you know, I was starting to see this kind of backlash on the bigger platforms. So all the platforms that had gone out and raised a lot of money we're then now starting to do things that would benefit um, the kind of uh, enterprise value of the business over the value they create for their users, right? And so that's when you saw, you know, uh, Facebook start to rein in so much of the developing effort that they had um, worked aggressively to cultivate on their platform. They then started to kind of like chop off at the knees, right? Or you'd see, Twitter just like lop off their API and, and really tried to centralize everything that was going on there. So I think, yeah, there was a kind of entrepreneur we were tracking where I was like, oh, there's this, you know, there, there are these kind of irreverent people who um, they recognize the value of building something outside the system and doing something differently. Um, and that was interesting to me. The flip side of that was from a portfolio standpoint, like Seed, it was pretty clear like the bloom was off the rose with Seed. Like the, the value capture opportunity for Seed was going to be very challenging over the next you know, five to 10 years, right? You, um, you, you had this kind of massive compression that was going on from um, top tier funds that had all created very aggressive Seed programs and they were buying a lot of options. And so they were much less price sensitive. And then you had these kind of, you know, the kind of the, this, this wave of, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, you know, party rounds was, was a term we used at the time, but like this whole movement of like operator angels and angels that were coming in solo capitalists, they were all starting to come in. And so you were getting this massive compression on a classic seed fund, which would have been like what, 50 to $100 million, kind of leading, co-leading rounds suddenly all of that's called into question, right? Is there value in, leading, in having a lead? Is there value in having a board? Is there value in you know, how you structure it and how you price it? And we were watching that happen in our portfolio, even from funds two to three, you would just watch like the ownership 
that we had, you know, in, for instance, a company that goes public in fund two, we own 11% of that company that was going public out of a $60 million fund. Yeah, that was a, that was a great return. I mean, that, that one company returned six X that fund, right? Yeah. And, and that, you know, you're starting to see like those numbers aren't holding up those ownership stakes aren't, you just aren't able to get those. Um, and then, you know, you had these like uh, massively sequential fundraising rounds where, you know, you were um, even even in a company that seemed like it was going well, you'd be three checks in, four checks in to a pro rata round um, within 18 months of your first check into a company. And the question then becomes like, do I have any better information? Do I have any better data? And then, the, you know, and then. So those were like the those were the kind of opportunity signals that I was paying attention to. And then there was a third one, which was like, we, we are creating a universe of companies that is engineered for financing. And so we're getting these hyper fundable companies that understand the algorithm. They understand how to hack the process. But like, I don't know that that's fundamentally um a good representation of the opportunity set that's available to us. And so I was looking at companies that I would get excited about and think, okay, I love this company, but they're not fundable in the next year or 18 months. And so suddenly the, the, you know, the, the, the decision framework for an early stage investor isn't even like whether you're excited about something. It isn't whether you're excited to work with an entrepreneur. It's like, can I get this company funded in the next 12 months? And if the answer is no, there wasn't a mechanism, there wasn't a funding vehicle, there wasn't you know, a path for those entrepreneurs um, that allowed them to kind of continue to build out that vision, even in absence of meaningful venture funding. And so that's, it was kind of all those three coming together. It was like, oh, there, it feels like there's this interesting moment in this interesting lane from a portfolio construction, from this kind of like, you know, maybe it was, maybe it was false signal around like, cause all those companies I mentioned ended up going and raising massive amounts of venture funding. But like, you know, it felt like there was a moment where there were these kind of um, troublemaking entrepreneurs who didn't necessarily fit with or jive with this kind of buttoned up um, venture market. And, you know, and, and that, you know, could you, you know, like what what kind of startup ecosystem could exist if like 50 people in San Francisco weren't the ones making all the decisions on what the future would look like? It was it was that those kinds of, uh, you know, it was the intersection of those three things that kind of indie was born from. That makes perfect sense. And then, I mean, thinking about your framework as you approach startups, how did how did your lens for assessing opportunities change when you shift from the kind of OATV seed stage hat and you put on the indie hat? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, I mean, I think obviously, you know, an, an OATV company, let's call it, oh, Planet Labs, right? Planet, you know, uh, went public last year, um, they, their premise required massive amounts of venture funding to even test whether the hypothesis was right around, you know, we need to get a whole constellation of satellites up to even figure out if the data they collect is valuable. So, you know, 
that that was kind of the idea behind a lot of the stuff that we funded at OATV, these kind of moonshot types of opportunities. And so, you know, I would say, you know, with Indie, the way that framework kind of uh, flips is, you know, one, you have to be excited about the future that that like if that company is successful, you have to be excited about their impact on the future and how that shapes up. You know, but you also have to see a reasonable near term path to uh, sustainability or profitability, whereas, you know, with with the planet or some of these other companies, it's this kind of can you see a path like what do we need to, you know, what milestones do we need to achieve to become fundable? You know, this is like you know, what kind of damage can we do on one round of financing? And does that put this entrepreneur in a position to go all the way? Does that put them in a position to, you know, I think with Indy, you know, um, the idea was never, never raise money. It was just to put yourself in a position that you um, didn't have to raise money. And that, you know, if you did, it would be opportunistic. And if you did, it would be on your terms. Um, and so, you know, that required a different, it certainly required a different filter than, you know, like Figma, who, you know, from seed round to product launch was five years, you know, like that just took a lot of time and iteration before they were even uh, able or willing to put it in front of paying customers, right? Um, and there are some kinds of companies that require, you know, a free user base. And I think, you know, for the longest time, that was Figma as well. You know, but that was the right route for them. I think the challenge in entrepreneurship was that people extrapolate from those edge cases to, you know, kind of uh, conventional wisdom for everyone, right? And I think there are, you know, there were and are a lot of companies and opportunities that there is that kind of near-term um, kind of checkpoint of profitability versus fundability. And so that's the flip we would switch when we were evaluating uh, opportunities for indie. I, I think it's a it's a really interesting point that you make. I mean, we we come across bootstrapped profitable businesses um, in in the UK and Europe, and the rounds that those companies are envisaging become an immediate beauty parade. Like the whole narrative switches around. It becomes the investors pitching to the founders very quickly, and it's very much a case of like, okay, either this deal works for me, or we're just not going to do it. Um, and like that power dynamic is um, is really palpable. I'm curious in like if you think about the indie portfolio, were there particular business models that really, really worked um, with the indie thesis, with the indie strategy? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, VCs tend to stay away from um, software businesses that have service components to them. And so I would say, you know, some of our biggest, fastest growing, um, most profitable companies in indie had that um element to them where they they took on there's a service side to their business in addition to the software that they provided to those customers so they had you know recurring recurring revenue um early on and high margin recurring revenue but the blended you know the blended um margin was probably closer to 30 to 40 percent versus like 70 percent pure software um but it was you know kind of in those services that they were able to get a much deeper understanding of the issues that their customers were solving uh, or needed them to solve. And I think, yeah, I think that's why you still see, you know, we've got a company from V1 of Indie. So what, we're six years post that, maybe seven years post that. That company's still growing 
over 100% every year. Uh, they've not raised any money since our initial investment. They'll do 55, 60 million in revenue this year. Um, and so, you know, that's a, that's a very big, very real business um, that wouldn't exist, um, you know, if it had to just be a pure play software business. So I would say, I would say those, those tended to go to, to be re- relatively attractive to us. I would say things that were in like niches where, you know, like VCs couldn't really see that it would be a, a you know, a, a really big opportunity. You know, we had one that actually just transacted uh, a few weeks ago, a company called Talent Wall, which was doing, you know, a very uh, kind of discrete piece of the recruitment funnel uh, in hiring. You know, that's a company that, you know, in the first year we worked with them, they came in doing like mid six figures in revenue. Um, by the end of the first year, they'd grown revenue 5X. Wow. And they were on track to think 2X that again. You know, so they were they were starting to push, you know, eight figures of high margin SaaS revenue. They ended up uh, getting bought by a VC-backed company um, recently. Um, but, you know, I think on the internet, these niches can become really, really big and compelling. And so I think, you know, I think, um, unfortunately, indie became, you know, I think in a lot of people's minds, it was like the kind of smaller, you know, niche types of things. Um, you know, what what I struggled to communicate and what I was hoping more would pick up on was, was not that, um, like, you know, I think a lot of people pegged their, not just the value of what it is they're doing or their valuation of what they're doing, but, you know, the kind of scope of, of their ambition to how much money they raise. And I always felt like that was a really weird, um, it was incredible marketing on the part of investors um, to convince entrepreneurs that, um, you know, that their ambition was somehow correlated with how much money that they were raising. Um, if, if we were to take another run at Indy, I don't know how we would solve for that other than, you know, just having more and more case studies of companies like these that have come through the program or like the GitHubs, like the Atlassians, um, you know, who were able to reach, you know, massive scale and impact, um, you know, on relatively, you know, few dollars raised. But I think when you, when you, um, when you spend time with those entrepreneurs, I think that's, that's the hard part. Um, uh, one of the challenging parts to convey about the indie model was like, when you spend time with the founder of Qualtrics or you spend time with the founder of GitHub, um, it's not that they couldn't raise money. It's, it's actually that the benefits of not raising money wildly outweighed the benefits of raising money. And I think you're seeing, um, you know, I think you're seeing, you know, green shoots of that thinking right now as people wrestle with, like, I have this crazy cap table that I now have to manage against an opportunity that, um, you know, may not have kind of matched that same kind of capital. Or I now have to, like, I was doing everything that looked like I was supposed to do, of raising the money, hiring the people, um, but that was all kind of a smokescreen for the lack of progress that was actually happening under the hood. And so when you talk to a lot of these founders who went the more indie bootstrapped route, you know, 
they'll acknowledge that like not having those resources early on ended up being far more an advantage than if they would have had them. Because if you would have had them, the um, intent would be to have kind of spent those and invested those as quickly as possible. And I think that's always a challenging piece to kind of uh, unpack from the indie story. Yeah, I, th I think it's um, the case study point is interesting. You know, I mean, we have in, in Europe here, checkout.com, which is, of course, seven years bootstrapping, then the largest Series A, sort of 200 million plus Series A after seven years of bootstrapping, profitable for its entire life. Now the second most, actually the first, now, thanks to Klarna, now the, now the most valuable um, startup in Europe. Um, so I, I think case studies like that make a big ink big, big impact. And that freedom to focus on your customer rather than your investors is quite a powerful narrative. But I agree with you. It's, it's who are founders looking up to? What are the, what are the kind of case studies um, that, that they're focused on? You've been hanging around this for a while. What attracted you to it? Like what were either the narratives or what were the, 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 the companies that drew you into this thinking or this kind of emergent community? I think I think what drew me into it was a, was a bit of a push and pull. So on the push side, um, what I got a little bit frustrated wa with was the, um, and we've touched on it several times already, but like this idea that um, there is a, a single path. You know, I've 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 read and consumed all the Y Combinator stuff. I've seen all these other guys out there raising. I've seen TechCrunch reporting on everyone. This is what I now need to go do. And when you talk to some of those founders and you say, you know, why are you actually, why are you raising this round? Like, what is, what does this round unlock for you? And um, there's no, there's no really clear answer. It's like, okay, well, we're just gonna, we're gonna go hire a bunch of people. We're gonna do this. It's like, why? Like, why are you focused on this? And I think what I found increasingly frustrating was seeing a lot of really great businesses where. I can say in my mind, do you know what? I can see a really easy path for this business to be a three to eight million ARR business. Like this could make you as a founder incredibly wealthy if you build it in the correct way. But if you raise money from me or if you raise money from any other VC, you've totally closed that route off for yourself. Um, and then, you know, on, on the pool side of things, um, I think really in the last couple of years, we've seen all of the building blocks for SaaS companies, especially kind of fall into place such that you can spin up an MVP very quickly. You can iterate really fast. You can get to series A milestones on very, very little capital um, and a mechanical Turk type product um, that is doing a fraction of what you ultimately wanted to do. Um, and then this sort of explosion of non-dilutive finance options, as I think the whole kind of capital markets ecosystem starts to catch up to the fact that SaaS businesses especially have a fairly predictable business model, um, said to me, all right, you've now got this, 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 this coming together of, um, of tech and of capital that makes this now more achievable than it's ever been. So I mean, that, that was the genesis for me. Um, and, um, and I got super frustrated with the kind of one size fits all against that. It felt like, you know, VC was going headlong in a direction against what um, the opportunity set that's available to founders was suggesting. I love that. No, I mean, I think my, my partner, Tim, came up with a great metaphor um, in the middle of all this, which was like, you know, road trips, you know, aren't a tour of gas stations, right? Like, you know, and unfortunately entrepreneurship, you know, really quickly became this tour of gas stations. They kind of lost the plot on what it was we were building or building towards aside from like fundable milestones. And in fact, you know, even recently I had, you know, I had a conversation with an entrepreneur 
which, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I had to point out, like, you know, the discussion was around like which direction they should be going. And they said something along the lines of like, which one of those is most fundable. And I was just like, ah, like we're really like, which one, you know, like how are we to this point where, you know, the, the things that are going to get built are going to end up being the things that are most attractive to investors instead of like the thing that it felt like they were put on this earth to build, you know, or like you said, you know, there's so many great, you know, um, I mean, that, that, that non, you know, decacorn businesses, right? I mean, that's the fascinating thing to me. Like when we came into seed investing, like the idea of billion dollar outcomes was nearly laughable, right? Like, you, you know, we, you know, we modeled our entire fund return profile off of like best case, 150 to $200 million outcomes, like that's what the, those were the kinds of outcomes that drove the needle, you know, moved the needle for a seed fund. And so to then, you know, decide one, there's only one path and two, there's only one outcome that matters. I thought was, you know, I, I think, again, it goes back to just incredible marketing on the part of, of VCs in terms of kind of packaging up and selling a story of ambition that every entrepreneur can buy into. And, you know, and I think to some degree kind of hack. You know, for the ones that that kind of fit them up. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I, I'm really interested in if we can touch on like the terms of indie. So, uh, rightly or wrongly, one of the elements of indie that just became most known was the terms. And so, just to recap for for listeners that aren't familiar with that, essentially a, a convertible note, but one that included a capped redemption component if a company decides not to raise again um, or uh, or to not exit. Do you think um, do you think those terms were a help or a hindrance? Oh, I think they were a hindrance. That's interesting. I mean, did, did founders come to you because of the terms, or were they coming no. to you because of the the ethos, the culture? Yeah, no, we, yeah, I mean, we always had to sell the terms, which was, yeah, I mean, um, that was, uh, yeah, that that was a hard, that was a painful lesson to learn, right? Like people just want standard stuff, right? Like, but it's hard to give them standard stuff, um, you know, and be true to that. Right, like part of what we were trying to express in the terms was way less about any kind of legal recourse. It was really trying to make explicit the optionality that they were creating for themselves and working with us. And instead it just created this um, inordinate amount of friction um, and learning curve for someone who was kind of default aligned with indie. And so what we found over time was like, yeah, 99% of the entrepreneurs who came to work with us came to work with us because of the narrative, the, the values, the, um, the ethos, the community of builders, all of that. Um, and in each of those cases, they kind of swallowed hard on the terms and just dealt with it. Um, but, you know, for us early on, I think it was a... Um, yeah, it, it felt like uh, an important uh, flag to put in the ground around, um, you know, really showing entrepreneurs how much control we were giving them. Like, it's one thing for a VC to say they're founder friendly, 
well, how founder friendly does it look like right now to have like just given somebody some obscene valuation that they can never grow into, right? Or to give them so much money that they've, you know, kind of in, created this burn mechanism in their company that it's now going to require them laying off 50% of their company. Like how founder friendly is that now, right? Like our whole idea was like founder friendly is like, you as the founder get to control every element of these terms. Like there is literally nothing that we can do to screw you over with this term sheet, right? Like all the way down to like, you can buy us out for three X, you know, our investment, even in the case of like a massive outcome for you, you can still buy out, you know, our piece. It, it felt like we were coming into it, you know, kind of with, um, our hands fully up, like you know, you, you you know, we were trying to give entrepreneurs control over every dimension of it, and I and I just don't think that was value. That's interesting. I think maybe it was kind of lost in in the you know, like the trade off of non standard terms for c- complete and utter control, like that value exchange just wasn't there. And so I know of you know, kind of mid and post indie, I can think of dozens of companies who came to us and said, we love everything about this. We just can't do the terms. And, you know, the other thing that comes with the terms is like, we were comfortable with them, but most other investors weren't. Right. And so, you know, if you're an entrepreneur who wants to raise a million dollars or $2 million or $3 million on any terms, um, syndicating that was incredibly difficult. And so, you know, it kind of left us in this position where, you know, we would find and want to work with certain entrepreneurs around certain opportunities, but like, we just couldn't, you know, you just couldn't, you know, find the capital that was willing to invest on any terms versus not. That's a really interesting insight. I, I think one of the things that, that that we do, so we have a set of terms that, that looks similar to indie terms and that is definitely um, building on, on your original sets um, as inspiration, but where we differ, I guess, is that we offer founders the choice. We say, okay, we can either do a regular equity round or we can use um, this other instrument, which we call a hero, which is a hybrid equity or revenue option. Um, and Dude, everybody, everybody has such great acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's where you went wrong. Maybe V3 wasn't en- enigmatic enough for people. <laughs> that, might, that might have been it. <laughs> um i it's i think i find it interesting to see the reaction of founders when they have the choice like there are definitely some founders that actually choose the hero and that's really really cool it's interesting to yeah. understand their thought process to how how they got there um and then there are, as you say there are some who just say look i want it easy let's go with equity and i've got these guys already here or maybe we're joining around and it's it's um and it, and it gets too complicated we've had um investors join us on a hero which is cool um but again like you say there's there's some who just can't wrap their heads around it and then of course we default to just doing equity because it's just too hard for the founder i think that that, that's an interesting part too like indie terms continue to like i still get weekly questions from people who are taking investment or making investment on indie terms so there i think there is some value yeah especially considering like when we started you know it was basically like equity or safes that's it like Mm. be able to kind of introduce these other um funding mechanisms and for indie to have them in, it sounds like on the hero too, to kind of be battle tested against a bunch of different scenarios. Yeah. I think in terms of, you know, this kind of, 
not having just one size fit all and one outcome. You know, I think one, one of the things we felt strongly about with Indy was like, you know, safes and convertible notes are designed to convert into something. And we wanted to make it explicit. Like this isn't designed just to convert into a next round of financing. And yeah, I mean, as in the weeds as that probably was, <laughs> you know, like, um, it, it, it's, it felt important at the time. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, this kind of, um, uh, indie diaspora of different, um, uh, terms, maybe, yeah, I think th th hopefully we can look back in 10 years and there's a healthier ecosystem that, you know, the, the entrepreneur who wanted to go a different route than maybe the traditional one, you know, had options to do that. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And I'm interested in in, um, in the the distribution of outcomes in the indie portfolio. And you know, this is the, the sort of venture nerd in me asking this question because it, it it feels to me like you and you've mentioned a couple of those sort of big winners in the indie portfolio. That the indie portfolio probably still has that same power law that we see in in a regular venture fund. And yeah. You know, maybe maybe there's maybe there's a play here with the terms as well, which is something that frankly we wrestle with a lot. Which is to say, okay, there's still going to be outliers. There's still going to be um, big big winners um, if you follow this 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 strategy that define the returns of the fund. And there, yeah. of course, as a fund, you want to be holding equity. And so there's that constant tension between the the, the the startup, the terms, and and the fund as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I say that as an open-ended, open-ended statement. No, rather no, no. Than... I, mean, I love kicking out on this stuff. Um, yeah, and, and and I think as it, you know, as more time goes on with India, I think that kind of portfolio dynamic actually gets way more interesting than say traditional venture, right? Like mm -hmm. traditional venture, you do have these power laws. Yeah, you know, I would say India's got like a dad bod return profile. <laughs> I don't know if that's a term over the UK, but. Basically, like you know, you have you have a you know a small head, you know a small tail, and then you've got this like chunky middle this <laughs> of companies, and so you know, like we yeah we, we I think that was part of my frustration uh, with Indy was like it became it was becoming so predictable. Like with each cohort we did, there would be one to two kind of breakout companies who would really create a ton of value for the portfolio. And I think the one thing we probably didn't talk a lot about was that in those cases, we would usually follow on with an equity round of financing from the fund. And so, you know, most of those companies that were breaking out in that first year, we had the opportunity to go in and do a price round of financing where we would just lock in our equity as part of that. Um, and then you'd have the short tail where, you know, I would say most traditional venture funds, 50 plus percent of their companies are just zeros, right? Uh, in the case of Indy, we have, you know, what I would probably call a 12 to 15% mortality rate. So companies that just like completely go out of business. And then you get the dad bod, this kind of soft middle uh, where, you know, you've got, um, you know, the, you know a, a pretty good number of companies, you know, um, that are generating redemption revenue for, you know, or, or uh, payments for us. And so, you know, right now... We, you know, we're still onboarding companies because we typically gave people three years before their first redemption payment. Hmm. Yeah, but right now, we'll probably do two, you know, steady state for the next probably five to six years will be two to three million in redemption payments, which, you know, for us, it's a $25 million fund will return 
call it 10 to 15% of the fund annually now just on redemption payments. And so, you know, the kind of chunky middle um, ends up being this really nice uh, stream of returns that allow us to kind of recycle, um, you know, our, our, um, our returns into either existing breakout companies or, um, you know, allow us to distribute that to LPs. But I think one of the big opportunities that in traditional venture is really hard because the timing of exits is so lumpy. Mm. Um, you know, it's really hard to get fully invested, let alone, um, uh, recycle investments in, in a fund, which, you know, most LPs really like the idea of, you know, basically getting their dollars, you know, working for them, um, uh, reworking for them. And so, you know, the, the kind of untold story of India at this point is like that redemption revenue is, is pretty meaningful. And so, you know, as these companies break out, I think we'll probably see in our kind of indie forward fund, which is fund four, I think we'll probably see 110%, 120% invested, which, you know, over the life of four funds, five funds, like we've never been able to get to that level of, of deployed capital. Wow. That's pretty interesting. Absolutely. I mean, and then, you know, we're now in, um, when indie was discontinued, we were in the final stages of this just massive 13 year bull run and kind of peak mania for funding um, and uh, and for venture. The market looks completely different now. Um, and I suspect it's going to look more different um, in six to 12 months time. And I'm curious if, if, you know, if this increases the appeal of the indie approach, it sounds like you're still getting a lot of people reaching out to you on the topic. Has that um, has, has that come up? And, and, and do you think that, you know, so indie, Indy's moment in the sun, at least as a sort of an ethos, as a, as a mantra, um, is about to arrive? <laughs> oh, you just Sorry, that's loaded. That's loaded. <laughs> Tear open those wounds and pour the salt right in. I mean, I think you know, I, have a, I have a bit of a tortured relationship with it, right? I mean, I... I really poured my whole heart into Indy for six years. And, you know, as you point out, like I did that in the middle of, you know, the world's biggest bull run, you know, and that we as a fund were beneficiaries of. We had three IPOs last year for OATV. Like life's pretty good on this side of the kind of um, power law, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, um, it is... Um, it, it's it's taken me a while. You know, I, I think the ch the challenge with the indie story is not that it didn't work, and I think that's the hard one of the hard parts to convey to people is it. It's not that indie didn't work; it's that indie didn't work at a scale that made it interesting to me at this stage of my career. Like I could, I probably could have raised another twenty to thirty million dollar indie focused fund, but you know. To my mind, that's selling the indie opportunity way short. You know, like that suggests we're just going to keep doing these kind of small cohorts of kind of C-ish stage companies. Like it totally ignores the fact that for the last five years, I was getting called from companies doing 10 million ARR to 100 million ARR who said like, I would never consider working with a traditional private equity firm or venture fund, but like, 
Indy's it. Like Indy is the model. Like Indy is the community we want to be a part of. And so, you know, not being able to kind of scale up Indy and give it the um, the opportunity that I felt like it really deserved. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about the kind of investing in the instrument, but, you know, we had a whole ecosystem we were trying to build around, you know, these kind of scouts that were out there kind of, um, you know, I felt like we were plowing some really interesting new ground in terms of, of those scouts um, and trying to build what we considered kind of this in the economy where we were creating incentives and structures that weren't necessarily tied to a blockchain, but they were certainly, um, they, they had kind of shared lineage with kind of creating um, economic structures and incentives within that community to really make that uh, in the economy, not just be a better version of, or a different version of, of the venture ecosystem, but something wholly different. And I, and so I, I think, you know, for me, I, I hope that um, the time is coming, you know, that people see the value of that approach that India was taking to kind of company creation um, but I would say there's probably even more layers to it because I do think, you know, what you're seeing in Web3 and the, and the economics around uh, some of these communities and this kind of, I won't call it anti-VC, but this kind of um, acknowledgement of the role that, you know, institutional influence has in some of these emergent economies. Like, I feel like there's some some intersection of like indie and the indie values and the way that indie thought about building with this kind of new dimension of the ethos that's taking shape that feels super exciting and interesting. Um, and I, and I, and I hope that everything from as like pedestrian as just kind of bootstrapping and really valuing, um, uh, you know, kind of scaled profitable businesses all the way to, you know, kind of, um, reconceptualizing um, startup economies and these kind of um, uh, ecosystems that we're building. I, I, I really hope that Indy has some kind of influence in that that is bigger than, you know, um, a handful of bootstrap businesses, if that makes sense. I think it makes perfect sense. And I, I think one of the like the most impactful things as an observer of indie and the indie movement is the power of that community, the strength, like the the, the, sort of the number of true believers of that indie approach. It's, it's hugely humbling, right? Like anytime I bring up indie, the immediate response from dozens of people is like, bring it back. When are you bringing it back? Where can I send the check? You just get harangued on Twitter. Whenever you, whenever you, uh, you break cover and talk about indie, it's the, 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 the fans are straight there. Yeah. And, and I, and I think it's, I mean, the interesting thing is it really is just a mirror. It's a mirror. It's no reflection of me or anything that I built. It's really a reflection of people who kind of found their place. They found their voice. They found something that really resonated with them in what we were trying to do. And I think that's, you know, when, when I reflect on some of the um, um, hardest aspects of winding down indie for me, it is like that genuine feeling of letting so many people down, not just in like the, the literal sense of people who were involved with indie. Um, but, you know, I think there was a whole um, movement of people coming behind that 
with their own ideas and their own approaches um, that I fear in not being successful in scaling indie might have thrown a wrench into some of their plans, might have dissuaded them. Like if we couldn't do it as OATB, which had had a relatively longstanding track record, not only of you know financial returns to our LPs, but also of kind of innovating in venture, like if we couldn't do it, um, my fear was that that was going to um, dissuade people from putting their own spin on it or taking their own crack at, you know, something indie adjacent. I, I, yeah, I don't think that's the case at all. I think in one of your posts, you talked about, you know, letting a thousand th- flowers bloom. Um, and uh, I absolutely think that's the case. So um, I, I, I think your concerns there are, are, are misplaced. Um I, I, so I'd love to hear about OATV Fund 5. You recently announced that and um, sounds from the post that that's a vehicle for you to um, to explore and to make investments um, under um, under your own banner again. And I'm just interested in sort of what's exciting you at the moment. Where are you spending your time? What are you focusing on? Yeah, so Fund 5, you know, basically what happened with Indy was when it was clear we weren't going to be able to raise a Fund 5 that I felt like made the indie strategy compelling to scale. Um, basically went back to our LPs and said, I didn't have the next great idea. <laughs> like they got the best one I had in indie and clearly it wasn't good enough. And so I needed some time to kind of regroup. Um, as I mentioned earlier, like I was all in on indie. Like my blinders were up. I wasn't paying attention to any of the crypto stuff that was going on. I wasn't paying attention to so many of the other aspects that were emerging in the startup ecosystem. I was just very, so kind of laser focused on getting indie, uh, you know, proven out um, that I hadn't really given myself space to think or think about differently or think about like what lessons I had learned from indie that I could maybe apply to other areas of, of the, you know, venture investing. And so, you know, I went back to the LPs who had kind of already run us through their process and offered them an out (laughs) that that they didn't have to go through with their commitment, um, but that I was going to kind of pool some of my own capital um, and and just take this time to kind of walk about and explore uh, with with a fresh set of eyes post-Indie. And and a few of those uh, were uh, excited to kind of come along for that journey. And so we're about a year into that. Um, you know, I mentioned in my post that I spent the first year kind of eating my feelings through writing checks. Um, so we had a, you know, an incredibly aggressive, uh, for me at least, uh, investment window over the last year of, you know, I think two dozen new companies that ranging from, you know, pre-idea, you know, to like, you know, a growth, you know, a growth stage round that I participated in. So just trying to kind of get my overall bearings back around kind of what's happening in the early stage ecosystem and, and, you know, how I feel about what's happening and candidly coming back, it's like, man, nothing's changed. <laughs> a whole lot's changed. Um, and, and so I think, I think you're catching me at a reflective time where I'm trying to, to, to kind of unpack how I feel about that. Like, am I, am I comfortable? Like, I don't think the OATV opportunity as we uh, articulated it in 2005 exists anymore. 
And so it's not like you just go back and become like another 50 to $70 million seed fund. I just, I don't think that world exists anymore. Um, and so if not that, and if not a scaled version of Indy, which in my mind is probably minimum 150 to 200 million to really kind of pursue the Indy opportunity at, at, at a, you know, in, in kind of the, the, um, the way that I, I think it deserves to be prosecuted. Um, you know, I, I think it's trying to figure out like where, where are the other green shoots of opportunities and what do those look like? And, and I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've kind of, um, I think I'm on the scent of a few things. I think, I think, I think there are some things happening in web three that are kind of in the adjacent that I find resonate kind of at, at like a molecular level with me. Like, I think that's part of the thing too, which is, you know, for better or worse, like it's, it's a, it's just the position that I'm in, which is like, I don't have to keep doing it. And so um, if I'm going to, um, if I'm going to continue, I really want to find something that speaks to my whole purpose. Right. And I felt like, you know, maybe in the only captured a part of that, and maybe, you know, like I was talking about before, maybe this kind of intersection of indie values and, uh, web three ethos, like maybe there's something at the intersection of those that isn't necessarily exclusive to the blockchain, but that kind of captures a, an archetype or an ethos or, you know, a type of entrepreneurship that I would be excited, you know, to be involved with for the next 15, 20 years of my career. But, you know, I, I, I would still say a hearty TBD. <laughs> On what on, on what the new what the new version looks like? I mean, in the last couple of weeks, the market's corrected pretty sharply. VC Twitter's going crazy about it. Uh, every article you seem to to read about is about how one company's crashing or another company's crashing uh, and they're doing layoffs. Who could have seen this coming? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I'm 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 pretty curious if you think uh, post correction there'll be a little bit of turbulence for a while and then the market will return to normal and, you know, reg business as usual VC will resume. Uh, or if you think this is a sort of permanent correction that's going to permanently change the narrative for, of the startup asset class. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think VC in this last um, phase decided that it needs to be something different than it has ever historically been. And I don't think that genie goes back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think you've seen fundamental shifts in, you know, fund sizes, fund strategies, um, deployment models that, um, you know, I, I don't think there's a, uh, there's a, I don't necessarily know that there's a renaissance and exploration. It's more kind of, um, I, I think you, you're, you're bound to see that, that flavor of venture become much more pronounced. But I think, you know, I think, um, I think if you are not a current market participant at that level, you have more surface area to explore and iterate and experiment than you've ever had before. And you probably got more license to do that too. Um, and, you know, I, I hope people take that opportunity to do that. But I, but I don't think anybody's given these dollars back they raised from LPs anytime soon. You know, my, my hope in, in doing that is that they take those and rather than, 
you know, I think what you saw um, over the last, you know, call it five to seven years was you basically um, put the things that already worked on steroids, right? Like, you know, anything that looked venture fundable um, historically just got 10 times the venture funding they would have historically gotten. You know, I think the opportunity and what I think is what I, what I would hope for, and I, and I don't know how I would grade the likelihood that this happens, but like, if you were to distribute that 10 X that was going into the one thing into 10 other things that it could be going into, um, you know, whether that's, you know, an archetype of a founder, an industry, uh, you know, an emergent technology, um, you know, that to me is a really exciting, uh, ecosystem to be a part of like that, that to me feels like what ventures should have been doing all along. Um, and, and I think, you know, in, in the, in, in the race to, um, mint unicorns, I think we lost the plot a little bit. And so it's a, that's a powerful one. And just building on what Josh has, has asked there. So you've seen and invested through multiple economic cycles. Okay. Um, and I'm curious on what your biggest takeaways from investing through a downturn, through a correction is, you know, my, my first one was just as I was coming out of university into 2009. Um, so I have never invested through a downturn. Um, and uh, I, I'm really interested in, in, in what your lessons from the last time, if we're sort of rewinding right back to the triaging days. I feel like that's, I feel like that's the hard part, right? There, there aren't a lot of hard lessons from 2008 to 2009. There certainly aren't many hard lessons from COVID. <laughs> you know, and, and so, you know, like I'm actually I'm actually not a believer that we're in for a fundamental reset. Like I, I think, you know, venture is in a in a um, we're in a state of kind of constant micro bubbles. And I think, you know, some will be larger than others. And I think we're seeing, you know, a fairly fundamental reset. But I actually don't think. I, I think you'll still see pockets percolating over the next even 12 to 18 months of like froth. And I think it's, it, it's pretty clear that the traditional venture model doesn't work without that. So we'll find a way to manufacture it. Right. And, and so, you know, I, I mean, my advice to, you know, most founders, yeah, and I think that's why indie, you know, was such a big part of me was like try to minimize your exposure and dependence on third parties. Like self-reliance is wildly undervalued. <laughs> uh, optionality is wildly undervalued. Um and, you know, I think I I I I think there are, I think too many people are too quick to pontificate and roll out the PowerPoints. Like I actually think it will be less jarring um, for the builder, you know, and for the value creator than, you know, for the speculator. And I think we've been in massive speculation mode. And I think, you know, you're, you're now watching a whole generation of speculators, you know, try to rationalize their behavior and that has, you know, in, in most respects, has nothing to do with someone who's just getting started today. And so, you know, if, if it's someone just getting started today, you know, you're in the most advantaged position of all, um, you know, either as an investor or as an entrepreneur, you know, you've, uh, you know, 
a clean slate today is is worth far more, more than a you know than a than an ugly cap table. Yeah, oh, and even a balance sheet. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm just I've seen the time. We've we've flown way over. Thank you so much. For, for A, for taking the time, B, for like overrunning by almost 2x the allotted time we had in the diary. Um, I was going to say if there's anything that we can do to repay, but I've actually got an idea. Um, I saw that your son, um, you, you posted a picture of him outside Man City uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm not going to hold it against him, but if you and him ever <laughs> come, to, uh, come to London and want to see some real football, we'll take you to a Fulham game. Uh, <laughs> I took him all the way to Burnley. For a game, this was like, I mean, it was like 18 hours of trains to get out to Burnley and for this game. And that, that's, that's a, it's a beautiful stadium, old Burnley. You really got to see the bright lights. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so we'll definitely take you up on that one for sure. Thank you, Bryce. A big, big thank you again to Bryce for chatting with us today and for you taking the time to tune in. So what were our three key takeaways from this session? Number one is that founders and investors should avoid developing their playbook around the edge cases. As Bryce pointed out, Figma, which is one of his portfolio companies at OATV, didn't generate any revenues for the first five years. That doesn't mean that this should be acceptable for all startups, despite Figma's success. Far from it. The second one is a little bit more for investors, and it's to check your blind spots for opportunities. Some of the most successful companies in Bryce's portfolio had service elements, a model which is often overlooked by VCs for its scaling pains. Third and finally, as the times evolve, so should your strategy. Bryce pays attention not only to how the macro environment is behaving, but also how his contributions are shaping things. As early stage investing ceased to be a disruptor to venture and later became a standardized path towards it, Bryce went on to form IndieVC in pursuit of new opportunities. That's it from us. Thank you so much for listening today and catch you on the next one.